Welcome to Insights, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Insights is an audio podcast that provides perspective on the opportunities and uncertainties facing investors today. Today's episode is Finding the Right Multi-Asset Partner for Your Investing Needs and is for institutional and professional investors. I'm Keith Cahill, head of the Taft-Hartley Client Business and North America Consultant Strategy Team. With me today is Sohail Galau, head of Institutional Multi-Asset Solutions. Welcome to Insights. Thank you, Keith. So what do you see as the biggest drivers behind the growth of interest in the multi-asset investing space? So there's no doubt that the return challenge has been the overriding driver in the industry. And what we could achieve operating in a siloed way historically only gets you so far today. So again, if the historical target was 75 to 8%, operating on a asset class by asset class level just doesn't cut it. And in order to extract more returns, I think there's more asset class balancing and work that's required. So very concretely, for example, if you can reduce fees by participating in an efficient way on traditional asset classes, redeploy that budget into alternatives, for example, you can get something that's more interesting than doing traditional asset allocation. And do you think multi-asset class investing is a tool that can bridge that gap in returns that you mentioned? It is indeed. I mean, what it does is it allows us to act on behalf of the plan in the most flexible way possible. I mean, that I would say is the primary benefit in a sense. Great. Are there distinctions in the way multi-asset class investing works based on different client types? So I'd say the biggest distinction in terms of implementation and needs is typically the size break. So smaller clients tend to be challenged around managing the overall plan, cross-asset allocation on a full plan level. And as such, most of their needs sit around what I would call OCIO, so somebody actually managing the entire plan for them. And in some cases, multi-asset needs for a what I would call a best-in-class multi-asset solution. Larger clients are not looking for OCIO. Larger clients are looking for multi-asset as a means of accessing innovation, accessing certain types of talent around the portfolio management space, access to specialized capacity. So some distinction, I would say, between the larger and the smaller, shared around the return challenge, but distinct in terms of how they actually implement. And are there differences, or rather, are you seeing more interest from certain client types than others? The return challenge is something that has affected the entire industry. So it is one of those things that Again, whether you are a public pension, whether you're a corporate pension, whether you're endowment, I think is a shared theme. Regardless of the plan type, if you will, there is a shared underlying strategy or there are shared underlying strategies that people use to invest. And so as long as those are the same instruments or the same underlyings, if you will, the challenge is the same. So digging deeper into the distinctions between different types of plans that utilize multi-asset class investing, can you talk a little bit about the different flavors that each might utilize in accessing multi-asset class solutions? Sure. So if you think of the historical multi-asset, the scope or the range of solutions varied from more balanced, traditional, static, largely traditional asset classes to, on the other extreme, I would say more flexible broader asset classes that include alternatives. And in a sense, you'll find that publics have historically been on the former. Endowments and foundations have been much more willing to participate in the alternative space. 
Today, what we're seeing is, in fact, actually that there is a flexing or move towards more flexibility on the part of all of the plant types. So publics, corporates are using alternatives much more than they have historically. And again, for different reasons. In the case of the publics, it'll be around moving towards more of a total return solution. In the case of the corporates, it's actually around more sophisticated liability-aware solutions that might have lower surplus volatility. The name of this podcast is Finding the Right Multi-Asset Class Partners. Do you think many multi-asset class investors are equipped to invest across publics and private markets and alternatives like you mentioned? It's a challenge for providers who don't have a broad platform, in a sense. So there are some providers who are specialists in the alternative space. There are some providers who are traditional public equities and fixed income. There are less providers who actually have the full gamut of solutions. And I'd argue less so that have capabilities that are multi-asset and they can put it in a multi-asset context. And at the heart of that, again, is a need for not only asset allocation, but research that supports the asset allocation. Research, ideally, that is actually integrated into the portfolio construction and asset allocation process. So we know that the background of multi-asset class investing started many years ago, traditionally with balanced funds. There now seems to be a trend more towards customization. Would you say that's accurate? I think so. I think there's a distinction. Again, if I go back to the comment around size, I think the customization certainly is something demanded of larger plans, whether they're corporates or publics. And part of that is tied to their own talent pools. If you have talent that is capable of accessing and constructing certain solutions, you're going to be looking for the gaps in those solutions. So for those large plans, there will be a need for customization. In a sense, however, the custom solutions, when you look at the two types of custom solutions that are out there, I'd say that there's two flavors. There are custom solutions that are fillers in the lineup of the asset allocation lineup. And then there are custom solutions that are trying to achieve a certain objective. So, for example, drawdown risk mitigation, crisis risk offset, inflation hedging or inflation management. So, again, two flavors there. Both will be custom in nature and both typically demanded of larger plans more than smaller ones. Great. And I guess you would also say that you're seeing that even on the 401k side with customization around target date funds and glide paths, not just in the pension or defined benefit and endowment space. I'd agree with that, yeah. Are there any other trends that you're seeing in the multi-asset space? So again, if you think of returns compression as the biggest headwind faced by plans, that has a cascading effect in terms of the way that you're actually accessing returns. So what we'll see is, and what we have seen over the last decade is certainly a big push in passive. A big push in passive because that has gained credibility in the industry as a legitimate way of accessing a bulk of the returns, but also because it allows plans to reduce fees as much as possible. So the passive-active push is a big part of the story. The question of passive or active, I would say, is actually not the framing, but rather the direction is towards passive and active being both part of the mix. So it's about optimization of the passive and active, I think, is a big part of the story that we see. Outside of the active and passive changes that we're seeing in multi-asset, one of the themes that we hear a lot about in the institutional space is factor-based investing and accessing alternative betas amongst institutions. How is that being implemented in the multi-asset space? Let me make a distinction between the factor solutions and the alternative beta solutions. The alternative beta solutions, I think, fit as a natural extension of the passive-active debate. 
It is about creating passive solutions that are cheap, efficient, liquid, that mirror the specific alternative or hedge fund style that they're actually going after. And so that is a natural extension of the passive active debate and is actually beneficial to the industry in terms of lowering fees. The factor solution has got a different nuance to it. The factor lens is really a risk and asset allocation lens that allows plans to look at their exposures differently. And in allowing them to actually look at their exposures in a more nuanced way, plans can actually choose to use passive or active to express or to fulfill the certain asset class need. But the asset class lens is actually one that's not going to go away. It's that the factor solution approaches provide a way of better balancing and better assessing your risk exposures. Great. And what about the theme or the trend of strategic partnerships? It's a term that we hear often, and it ties into institutions looking to do more with fewer plans or ask their existing managers to do more across asset classes. Can you talk a little bit about what we're seeing in strategic partnerships? Strategic partnerships, I think, are a natural extension of the big dialogue around return compression. So for the larger plans out there, as the returns challenge continues to kind of rear its head, if you will, in all asset classes, plan managers have been looking for innovation, for other ways of accessing the way they invest. And that expresses itself in terms of information sharing around innovative investment styles that expresses itself in terms of bespoke solutions that plans are looking to deploy. But at the heart of strategic partnerships, again, is that information exchange, the intellectual capital exchange, and that is appropriate, I think, for very large plans, less appropriate for smaller teams. And would you say it's a natural extension of multi-asset class in that institutions are looking for their managers to take down the silos of individual asset classes and think about solutions to investing challenges across asset classes in an unbiased fashion. That's a very good framing, in fact, Keith, because when we look at the successful strategic partnerships that are out there, many of them have been driven by CIOs sitting on top of large teams. And the large teams create that natural silo effect. And the strategic partnerships, in a sense, are a way of bridging the teams and providing a value add that the teams can coalesce around. So one of the terms that we use in JP Morgan, at least, is next-generation multi-asset class or multi-asset 2.0. Can you talk a little bit about what that means from J.P. Morgan's perspective and also the perspective of the market? Historically, I think when people have looked at the investment problem, they've focused on asset allocation as the big functional area that's dominated the decision-making. And the two or three other key functional areas have been sort of backseat, if you will, or support. In particular, what I'm thinking of is risk management, strategy selection or execution, and governance. Today, again, with the overarching theme of return compression as being kind of the biggest driver or the biggest challenge that plans are facing, this idea that you can look at those functions independently doesn't get you there. So the idea that in order to truly maximize on the return solution or come up with the best solution, there is much more integration that's required around those four functions. And again, the functions in my mind are asset allocation, risk management, strategy selection slash execution, and governance. And the interplay between those, I think, becomes very important. How should a plan look to evaluate a multi-asset provider? It seems to be quite difficult in that there are not standard indices or benchmarks that managers can be compared against. So I'll make a distinction between what I would call 
off-the-shelf multi-asset solutions and then custom solutions. For off-the-shelf multi-asset solutions, and they do exist out there as a category in the industry, I think evaluation is easy. It'll be similar to evaluation of other strategy types in terms of fit and how they correlate to the rest of your pie and is there an actual bucket that has to be filled or can be filled by a plan. I'll juxtapose that with uh, more custom or bespoke solutions and that includes OCIO solutions. And in that latter category, I think depth and breadth of capabilities play a big part. Track record of actual investing, not theoretical asset allocation, I think plays a big part. And then what I would call cultural fit with the plan's needs and the plan's objectives, I think, as well plays a part. And how does fiduciary responsibility play into evaluating a multi-asset class manager? It's certainly a different set of responsibilities that a manager takes on when managing across a number of asset classes towards a specific objective, as opposed to a single asset class against a specific benchmark? How do we think about fiduciary? Indeed, I think there's two levels when I think of the fiduciary problem. I think there's a level which is coming up with the right solution for the client and being alert to dynamically changing it. But then the second dimension is actually around what I would call advisor versus investment manager. And to an extent, what we're saying when we talk about multi-asset investing is that advisory type asset allocation is interesting, but the true fiduciary role is actually around being an investment manager. And as such, when we look at the industry and we look at how OCIOs, for example, are being selected, or even strategic partners are being selected for large multi-asset mandates, the emphasis today is more and more on investment managers with long track records who can actually demonstrate that they're not doing simply theoretical asset allocation exercises, but actual investable solutions that that can be backed up. Sure. And if those managers have been serving as investment managers for quite a long time, they're familiar with the the fiduciary responsibilities that come along with being an investment manager versus an investment advisor. Indeed. Indeed. So building on the fiduciary aspect of multi-asset class investing, how do we think about the position of the investment manager meeting the objectives of the plan within the constraints that that plan may have. And and I'm talking about real constraints that the plan has, but also relative value constraints that a mandate poses. In one sense, if you're given a pool of assets to manage across asset classes, when you find a good opportunity that you'd like to do more of, you essentially have to do less of something else. How do we think about that? I think that's a really good question, Keith. I think, and it goes to the heart of why multi-asset investing, in a sense, has got a different coloring on the fiduciary problem than single asset class. So for most multi-asset investors, there's really a balance of three things that come into play. There are the objectives that the plan has and why they're actually participating in the multi-asset exposure. There are the constraints in terms of the strategies, asset classes that are in purview or that are available to use. And then, in a sense, that is the universe of tools, if you will, that you have access to in terms of constructing the solution. The actual solution is a balance around those constraints and the toolkit or the universe towards achieving that objective. So that means if your constraints are around a risk budget, you have to balance a deployment of that risk budget across the different asset classes to achieve that objective. If your constraints are around fees, that means that you might have to be balancing access to lower and higher fee to, again, achieve the solution. It could be around liquidity and a balance of what asset classes from a liquidity perspective that you're using. So again, I think of three things in the fiduciary problem. I would think of objectives that a plan has, 
the constraints and then the universe or the toolkit that you actually have available to you in constructing the solution. And in the end, it's actually a balance that'll be bespoke in a sense. And how do we think about how multi-asset solutions mandates are bought and sold? You know, they're typically, from our perspective, not ranked in a database, you know, unless you're looking at the off-the-shelf type solutions. But for more bespoke and custom solutions, how does it work? How do they become onboarded? And what's the life cycle of these types of mandates? It's a challenge, I would say. In a sense, it's actually, it makes multi-asset investing and multi-asset deployment and plans distinct from single asset class strategies where there are tidy buckets to be filled you know, by plan allocator. What that means is that unless a plan has a distinct multi-asset bucket, if you will, or, or uh, allocation to be filled, that in fact, actually the conversation has to happen at the CIO level. Sometimes the CIO proxy can be the asset allocation unit within a plan, but more and more really the conversation is at the CIO level. And the CIO may choose to have a multi-asset solution as something that either supports the plan by being diversifying or that supports the plan by being, you know, a source of information sharing, intellectual capital sharing. But it is, it makes it certainly distinct from the way, you know, traditional single asset class strategies are sold. So for some plans that don't have a CIO or even a staff, we've seen an interest in multi-asset solutions as a tool the board can use to take away some of its own decision risk. In effect, saying that the board may not have the right governance structure to make decisions in a timely or needed fashion to take advantage of market opportunities. Can you comment on that a bit more and how we work in those opportunities? Sure. So in fact, when you think about the range of possible solutions that sit under the the umbrella of multi-asset that includes overlays, for example, in the tactical asset allocation space to multi-asset solutions that include alternatives to more constrained multi-asset solutions that might be only alternatives, so they're multi-alternative strategies. Any of those flavors allow a plan to access solutions that might not be easily or tidily accessible through their current strategics. So in a sense, the multi-asset solution can be an opportunistic way of accessing certain styles that wouldn't be available otherwise. So we've talked about multi-asset class opportunities being one manager being hired to manage across asset classes. We've also seen situations where a number of multi-asset class managers are hired. Can you talk about the benefits that we see in that type of situation? So in fact, when I think of the two big objectives that a plan might have for participating in multi-asset, it is either looking for diversification or looking for information sharing or looking for both. In both those cases, I think, when a plan has actually decided to go down the multi-asset route, there are benefits of actually diversifying and going across different managers. And that could be because the different managers provide different strategies or different approaches. So for example, it could be everything from, when I think of multi-asset, I think of everything from macro to systematic to CTA to traditional tactical asset allocation to balanced to simple multi-asset class around the strategic. But in all those cases, again, those are different flavors. And if you can go out there and look for managers that are diversifying, so different managers for the different flavor types, I think that is always additive. And again, that extends to the information sharing because a manager, for example, that is very strong in tactical asset allocation will give you a lens on information that, for example, a fundamental macro manager might bring that's different and, you know, et cetera, you know, along that spectrum. 
Thanks, Sohel. So if I think about the key points that we've heard, there's a real return challenge that investors are grappling with, and multi-asset investing is one way to overcome that challenge and deal with the low rates of return that we're seeing in single asset classes and deploy capital into higher returning areas that meet plan return objectives. The other thing I heard you talk about was the ability to innovate and add customization, both with smaller and larger plans, in an effort to increase diversification and increase total returns at the plan level. And finally, there's a lot of discussion around how it's packaged. There's Mm -hmm. different flavors of multi-asset class investing. And so we see it in the 401k space in target date funds. We see it in the pension space in liability-aware investing. Mm -hmm. We see it in publics and many corporates and endowments and foundations in total return and objective type Mm -hmm. investing. Indeed, I'd say that all of those are on the market. It's actually a very good way of uh, summarizing the discussion today. I'd add one last thing, which is that in order to actually pull it off in a way that is additive, that there are lots of components to the machinery. What you're talking about in the multi-asset context is integration of asset allocation, risk management, research, So there's a number of functions that actually integrate or come together in order to deliver it in a powerful way. What plans have recognized is that, in fact, it's actually difficult to do. It is uh, useful and, in fact, additive to partner with external providers that live in the space. Sohail, thank you so much for joining us on Insights. Thank you for having me, Keith. Thank you for joining us today on JP Morgan Insights. If you found our insights useful, you can find more episodes on iTunes and on our website. Recorded on February 24th, 2017. The views contained herein are not to be taken as an advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction. Nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production, but no warranty of accuracy is given, and no liability in respect of any error or omission is accepted. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks, the value of investments, and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yield may not be a reliable guide to future performance. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. This communication is issued by the following entities. In the United Kingdom by J.P. Morgan Asset Management UK Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. In other EU jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe, SARL. In Hong Kong, by JF Asset Management Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds Asia Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Asia Limited. In India, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management India Private Limited. In Singapore, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Singapore Limited, 
or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Singapore Private Limited. In Taiwan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Taiwan Limited. In Japan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Japan Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type Two Financial Instruments Firms Association, and the Japan Securities Dealers Association, and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency. Registration number: Kanto Local Finance Bureau. Financial Instruments Firm Number Three Three Zero. In Korea, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Korea Company Limited. In Australia, to wholesale clients only, as defined in Section Seven Sixty One A and Seven Sixty One G of the Corporations Act Two Thousand One. CTH by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Australia Limited. ABN Five Five One Four Three Eight Three Two Zero Eight Zero. AFSL. Three seven six nine one nine, in Brazil by Banco J P Morgan S A, in Canada for institutional clients' use only by J P Morgan Asset Management Canada Incorporated, and in the United States by J P Morgan Distribution Services Incorporated and J P Morgan Institutional Investments Incorporated, both members of Finra S I P C, and J P Morgan Investment Management Incorporated, in APAC distribution is for Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan, and Singapore. For all other countries in APAC, to intended recipients only. Copyright 2017, J.P. Morgan Chase and Company. All rights reserved.